Hello, friends. My name is Steve, and I'm here today with author Bill Richardson. Bill, thanks for joining me tonight. Glad to be here, Steve. It's good to talk with you. Yeah, I know we've been planning it for a while, and it's uh, you know it's the time of year where it's hard to schedule stuff. Yeah, the holidays. It's uh, it's it's a good time, and it's also a complicated time. And and everybody out there, if you're watching this around the holidays, Merry Christmas to you. Yeah, Merry Christmas for sure to everyone. And uh, so I was. I want to thank you for sending me the list of uh, kind of things you've done in your past because you've done a, a whole lot of things and I want to ask you about all of it. So because uh, you, you, you're not only an author, you're also, um, you've written a lot of, in your author works, you've also written a lot of different genres like comedy and horror. I want to ask you about that. And you're also a sculptor, a digital artist, a painter, <laughs> and you've done a, a whole lot of, you've also worked in TV. Uh, you're you're a comics collector. You've done a lot of traveling, so have a lot of a lot of questions for you. So I hope you're ready. Well, I'll try not to be boring. Okay, I don't I don't know if that's I don't think that's a concern. <laughs> so uh, so let's start with uh, what did you start with first? Did you start with writing, with uh, painting, or with sculpting? What was your first passion? I started writing poetry and little songs when I was seven, eight, nine years old. And the guy that I co-wrote those songs with, he's now a professional musician, uh, has been for, for many years. He plays uh, bass for Jamie Johnson. Um, and he was, he was my cousin. But I, I first started, we, we started writing little jingles and songs and silly poems, just, just things that were funny. Um, and I've always had a, a love of the written word. I started reading when I was like four. Wow. So how did that evolve into all the other different art forms? Well, um, it, it's, it's kind of a burden to be interested in a bunch of things. I, I, it's almost better to be that one person who's good at one thing and you stick with that and that's all you do. And to have a, a bunch of interests, um, it's, it's, you know, you have to worry about focus, but it's really valuable to me in that when I, I get burnout writing, I spend time on, you know, physical art and those kind of things that you can do with your hands. I, I think I've just always been a creative person to get to, to your question. And uh, I've always had a mind that, that, you know, was interested in a lot of things, uh, you know, both learning, but, but also trying different things. And I, I think that's sort of, it's just part of my DNA, I guess. It is a blessing and a curse in a way because you have so many different uh, hobbies and it's hard to focus on one or the other because you'd like to bounce back and forth. Do you have a favorite that you enjoy the most? I, I love writing because writing is the purest form of creation. You hmm. basically make something out of nothing. And, uh, you know, there's, there's no physical constraints to it. And, uh, you know, when you're working in film, it's collaborative, which is nice but also it's much more complicated. If, if the people you're collaborating with don't do their job very well, then the product stinks and it's not your fault. And when you're writing, it's really just you, you know, it's, it's all on you. And um, you, you're, you're basically able to, there's just no limits to it, uh, which can be difficult for some people, but I, I just find it to be enjoyable and freeing. Uh, whatever I imagine, uh, I can write it down and spend a little bit of time rewriting it and getting it into a format that people uh, can can relate to. It's it's funny you mention that because I recently spoke with Joseph Sale. He's an author from the UK, and he was we were discussing, or he was 
uh, explaining how, how words are magic. You can do so many different things with words, and that's uh, it's they're pretty powerful. I never thought of it that way, but I think that's there's some truth to, some truth to that. A absolutely, and, and one of the things that I say is, uh, here here's a piece of magic. <laughs> Close your eyes, and think of a pink elephant on its tiptoes dancing. Now, what I just did was I did telepathy. I just put an image into your head and never even saw you or touched you or been in a room with you. And that might be the only true magic that there is in the world, is that ability for me to communicate with you and put something into your head. And the next level of that that makes it really interesting is that you saw an image that was an elephant on its tiptoes dancing, but you saw it in a different way than anybody else saw. So it's part what I'm communicating, and then you bring something to it as well. And so it's completely unique and collaborative experience. And that's basically what writing is. And so I think it's, it's, it's the only form of magic that really exists in the world. Yeah, I never, I never thought of it that way, but yeah, that makes that makes sense. And you mentioned your time in TV and in film. So, what in your during your time in film and uh, and TV, what surprised you most about that experience? Well, uh, the first film job that I had was an extra on a film called Mate One, and uh, so for twenty two of the forty four shooting days, I sat around. And, you know, you shoot for 12 hours a day and you're only used on camera for very, very short periods of time. And I sat there day after day, hour after hour. And the thing that surprised me was that I thought I could do this. It's it's not magic. It's very straightforward. Uh, and that was the thing that surprised me, sitting on a film set and just seeing that it is something that's doable. It's It's not something that's you know, unreachable. And that's the way most people feel about things like that they haven't done yet. And, um, you know, I, and I went from that experience. Um, there were some guys that I met on that film that drove across country to do a uh, documentary on a guy named Carl Barks. Carl Barks is the uh, artist that sort of took Donald Duck from the uh, from television and movies. And, and wrote all those Donald Duck comic books, the very, very early ones. And his, worth, his art is worth, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars now. But I'd never heard of the guy. And when we were traveling across country, I realized that the, the guy who was the producer had no idea what he was doing. And on that 40-hour trip, I studied up on this guy. I did a, a loose shooting script. I, I drafted the interview questions for the people that we were going to talk to. And by the time we got there, I basically ran the shoot. And the only thing I'd ever been was an extra on a film. And that proved to me that this was something that I could do. And then I set about trying to spend a lot of time trying to do it. So what did you move on from uh, in, in terms of in TV and film? What did you do next after that? Well, uh, there, I, I got home and one of the other people who had worked on this film, but I had not met during the film, was... Um, was doing a, an episode of car film called Chillers. It was a, a film with five different segments in it. And uh, I went to him and I said, uh, give me a job on the movie. And he said, sorry, I don't have any jobs. They're all full. And I said, well, give me one anyway. And he said, okay, so I've got, 
these uh, three little boys in the first scene that we're shooting, and I need somebody to babysit them, keep them out of trouble. And I'll give you a second assistant director credit on that episode if you'll do that. And I said, sure, I'll take anything. And so um, he was using a lot of student labor on that film. And the, um, the guy who was the assistant director who had, had never been on a film set, and he sort of wilted under the pressure. And I stepped in and took over. And I was the assistant director for the rest of that film. And, uh, and all the people that I met during that process, we became sort of a band of brothers that made a number of films after that. Wow. And that, that film was called Chillers. And um, um, the same company that does Toxic Avenger, uh, that was the, was a distributor for that. They, uh, Trauma. Trauma was a distributor for that film. Wow. So I, I think people underestimate the power of, of persistence and knowing when that moment arrives where you can step in. So like in your case, you stepped in in that moment where the other uh uh, assistant kind of wilted under the pressure and knowing when those moments arrive and how to take advantage of them. And there have been moments in my life that I, I wasn't smart enough to grab. <laughs> um, the guy who uh, directed the film mate one, I met him not too many years after that. And he said, what are you going to do next? And I hemmed and hawed around instead of saying, whatever job you'll give me. Um, but you know, th uh, there, there are maybe, I, I tell young people that, you only get a couple of breaks in your lifetime and you have to be prepared for them and you have to be aggressive and take them even if you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> um, you know, fake it, you know, make, fake it till you make it in, in, in some situations, but you get very, very few opportunities and you have to jump on them because they just don't come back around again. Yeah. I think, I think part of that is experience just knowing when those, because, some, like I said, sometimes moments pass you by and you just don't realize it. So you know, it just comes with experience, but it is definitely important to to pounce when, when those moments are in front of you. Sure. Um, so I, I noticed that you worked in reality TV as well. So I wanted to ask you about that because I think that's really interesting. I think I'm fascinated with reality TV. So I think most people would ask, how real is reality TV? Um. Well, these days they call it unscripted because it's not all that real. Um, I'll give you a little behind the scenes uh, from a show that I was involved with. Um, there's a lot of people who are fans of American Pickers. And on American Pickers, it looks like two guys roll up and, you know, everything happens by accident. Uh, the producers sent three different people to me before that show happened. And uh, I took each person to the place where they were going to do their pick, let them talk to the locals, the, the person who, was, who had the stuff. And um, now the, the Mike and the, 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 the leads there on the show had, had not, but the producers had been there three times. And so they didn't, the, the, the people don't commit to whether or not they're going to sell anything or not, but, or, even, or even to a price or anything like that. But if you think about it, you've got this crew of 10 people and you're spending, you know, $100,000 a day. You can't just roll up on something and just, oh, maybe it'll happen or maybe it won't. Uh, so you do that. That kind of preparation is there. Um, in, in the case of, of Pickers, the moment to moment interactions with the, with the, with the characters on the, the show, 
that that is live and real and and uh, not staged. But some of the other shows, it's 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 the whole gamut. Um, uh, everything from it being you know, just very 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 scripted, not scripted, but sort of an outline of what's going to happen, and a lot of planning and preparation going into and to and and then to the other extreme, I think is is something like Pickers, where there has been a lot of preparation, but the actual interactions are are pretty much, um, you know, what happens at the time. And with so much reality TV, reality TV being made, is it cheaper from from a production standpoint to make a reality TV show than like something scripted? Yes, absolutely. That's that's part of it. And one of the things, um, I. I scripted films are going to do this eventually because I, I, one of the things that I noticed how amazing it was is that in reality you shoot with three cameras. When you're doing uh, uh, a regular feature film usually you have one camera and the biggest time hog when you're making a film is every time you move the camera you have to relight and that takes about two hours. Hmm. And so time is money. Uh, and But when you're shooting reality you've got three cameras and uh, everything happens in real time. And you don't re do retakes. You don't do uh, the same scene over and over again. And you don't have to worry about matching and that kind of stuff. So it's, um, it, reality is, is way cheaper as a result of it. And the people get paid less too. That's, that's another part of it. But, uh, and there's some really good filmmakers. I work with some really tremendous uh, filmmakers. And just because it's reality doesn't mean these people aren't very, very skilled. But um, it, it, is, it is absolutely cheaper to do reality, and that's the reason you see so much of it now. Hmm. And with what you mentioned that you have to read light, and it takes almost two hours. In a, in a typical day, how many, how many minutes would you have completed filmed in a typical day for a feature? Um, you're lucky if you get three or four minutes a day. Wow. On a, on a feature film. And if you're doing action scenes, it's you're getting seconds in a day. When you see these big action scenes and you know you, you don't want to ruin this for people because uh, you when you're a filmmaker, you can never watch a movie the same way again. You can't just enjoy it as much. <laughs> but um, you know it's like making the sausage. But in a in an action film, you know there are all these cuts. Um, sometimes it takes an entire day. Um, the, um, it, it, it just, it's just very, very time consuming to do those action scenes. And so when you're doing action scenes, if you get 30 seconds or a minute in a day, you've, you've had a good day. Wow. And, um, the, the movie, the Revenant, uh, they would do these really long shots and they would do them every day at dusk. And so they would plan and rehearse for eight hours. And then they would have magic hour, this, this little bit of time at dusk, to shoot the entire scene. Hmm. Uh, and so you, you, you have situations like that that are really, really unusual. And films like that, you know, that film took like nine months to, to film. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I, never, I, I knew it took a while. I didn't realize it would be minutes in a day that would, it's, that would be a good day. That's, that's a lot of work. It is. And some just tremendous professionals, people that, you know, you, you, they're unsung heroes that you really don't get to know about there that are just doing, you know, these very, very small jobs. And um, if one person drops the ball 
there's a chain reaction and and you know things just stop and and another thing is that you can be the, the world's greatest writer you can be the world's greatest director but if if the actor can't pull it off then everybody looks bad uh, and you don't get to see that a lot in, in the films that most people make because you know they're, they're professionals and they've been doing it a long time but um, if an actor has a bad day uh, that lives forever and and that haunts a lot of people yeah. everybody sees it yeah the, and yeah. Um, I don't want to point fingers but uh, watch Sin City in the opening scene of Sin City uh, I won't mention the actors' names, but they're both really wooden. And um, one of my uh, one of my, one of the things that I do is I don't shoot the first scene of a movie first because mm. of that. And um, but the, the, those the two actors in that scene are, they're just very they're great in the rest of the film, but they just haven't got rolling yet. And uh, and you know when you're the actor it's really tough because if somebody else doesn't do their job, if you're having a bad day, everybody sees it and it lives forever. <laughs> I think I know what you're, I think I know who you're talking about. <laughs> and with, uh, with reality TV and with competition, reality TV, how much of that is influenced? Do they, do they kind of set the table for these conflicts or are there just conflicts that people have? Uh, one of the things that happens uh, is that when you're on a show, you know that it's a show. And uh, my wife watches these these Housewives movies, uh, uh, series, you know, the Housewives of New York or whatever. And it, it, it's like every season, one of the characters just completely breaks down or does something just to destroy their life. And I think what happens in, in any of those kind of shows is that and it's the same thing with competition shows, is that people want to be on camera and they want to be the focus of things. And drama is about conflict. And so they understand that. And they, you know, they might not be as contentious in real life as, as they are on, on that particular show, but also they're cast because of that, because the, 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 you, know, you don't see a lot of humor in reality TV. It's about drama and drama is conflict. And so they specifically um, cast people who are going to be able to to deliver that conflict. Hmm. I, I would imagine it would be difficult to be in a, on a reality TV show and these cameras follow follow you around and these you know these employ you know these crews follow you around and then one day they're just gone. Yeah, and it's it's you know it's strange because there's seven people in the room a lot of times. There's usually three cameras an audio guy, a couple of producers, an audio uh, assistant. And so you watch these shows and you don't really realize that, you know, there's, these people are having these, you know, a, say emotional breakdown and there's seven people standing there watching. Um, and, and and that gets to your, your question about, is it real? I mean, how real can it be if there's seven people standing in the room that are total strangers basically watching what you're doing? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, my, my wife's cousin was one of the, winners of Hell's Kitchen, one of the seasons of Hell's mm -hmm. Kitchen. And, and I talked to him after, and he, he has this guilt about winning that he he felt like he shouldn't win, like he shouldn't have won, and he felt like he, the other person should have won. And I, I wonder how much of that happens after the fact that uh, people go through these emotional roller coasters after being the focus on something like that, and then just they're back to normal life. Well, 
you know, most people have the opposite. They wish they had won. Uh, there is something about, you know, here's your 15 minutes of fame. And then mm -hmm. after that, what do you do? Yeah. Um, you know, it, your, your life goes back to a different gear. And some people, you know, spend their life reliving that 15 minutes. Um, but it, it's, you know, it's different for different people. You know, mm -hmm. it, it just depends on the person. And in general, you have to be lucky that you had that time in the sun and go on with your life um, and not keep chasing that because it's, it's a, it's a, it's usually very disappointing to continue to chase those things. Yeah. Especially with so many of them now, I think when it first, uh, when reality TV first was popular, I think a few of them capitalized, but now they're, they're everywhere. So it's hard to. Hard and to the, con on. the, one of the things that's happened is the contracts have changed. Uh, used to, you had people who, um, uh, I actually worked on a on a project where they wanted people to give up their likeness to 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 sign over the rights to their likeness. So, in other words, you don't own your face anymore. Wow! Uh, and so, you know, some of these companies will ask for things that are just completely egregious. And for most reality, the pay is not good. Um, uh, I, you know, the, the people on Hill's Kitchen probably made three hundred dollars for for a day. Um, people that are on long going, uh, running shows, if they become a real popular character. Those people make money, but that that doesn't happen at the beginning. And a lot of times, you you will sign a three year contract at the beginning because that way they can keep your your income low before you're uh, you know while you're untested. And if you get too big too fast, they don't have to raise the price a lot. Uh, mm -hmm. And then you cash in, and you know year four if you're lucky. Uh, but but most reality TV doesn't pay a lot of money unless it's a long running. Uh, show and and you're a very very popular character. Wow, yeah, I, I think a few of them have have made some money, but it's pretty rare that that happens. Yeah, it, you, you you see that in shows that that last you know three years or more. Yeah, and they become personalities, and then mm -hmm. it becomes a whole another thing. And <laughs> and to your 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 thing there is a lot of times you're you're in your contract you're forbidden from making money, mm -hmm. uh, you know. Uh, by selling a t-shirt or whatever it would be. Uh, and in some, it's a part of your contract. When you get to the point of having some bargaining power where you can say, you know, uh, there, there are several characters that have, you know, used their image and their likeness or even had products uh, that they've been working on during the show. Um, and those those things are all negotiated ahead of time. Wow, that's really, really amazing. And so you've worked in, in so many different types of film and one of the, another type of uh, production that I'm curious about is documentaries, because I think documentaries are, I, I would imagine they're tough to pull off because you want to grab people who aren't normally searching out things like history and you want to grab their attention and keep them watching something that they normally wouldn't read in a book or go out of the way to. So what, what are some, some keys to making a documentary eye-catching and engaging? Well, one of the things about documentary is that documentaries are made in the edit. You know, mm -hmm. usually when you're doing a feature film, you write it and then you try to shoot it, you know, fairly close to the script. But in a documentary, you have an idea of what the film is going to be at the beginning. And you have a list of questions of the people that you interview. And you've got, you know, you've got a, a, a general knowledge of the topic. And you're trying to, you're, you're trying, you, you have an idea of what you're trying to say or what, what it's going to be. But then you get in the middle of the project and you interview these people and they say things that you don't expect 
mm-hmm. or um, things go a different way. Uh, and in, invariably things don't go exactly the way that you think that they will. And then you get all this footage that you've got and you cut it together when you're, when you're editing it. And so a, a documentary is really written in the edit. It's really formed in the edit. You've got an idea at the beginning of where it will go, but it, it just doesn't always go there. And so that's the one thing that's completely different about documentary versus, you know, feature films or, or, or things that are scripted. Um, the, the, the big challenge with documentary is usually you've got the audio, you've got the, the, the through line, you've got the interviews and that kind of stuff. The thing that's hard with, with documentary is having the visuals to keep people interested while you're moving through that, that story or that information. Hmm. So what are, what are ways to keep the, the viewer interested? What, what kind of visuals are used to keep them, uh, you know, engaged and, and uh, it, it, you know, it sort of depends. Um, you know, um, people talk about the Ken Burns method, Ken Burns, you know, what he used to do is, was move the camera over photographs that were still photographs because <laughs> that was what people did in the early days of documentary. And these days that's sort of become passe and, uh, you see a lot more moving footage. You see a lot of, Reenactments. Reenactments are a very, very big part of, of you know, nonfiction filmmaking and documentary filmmaking. Um, and so there's a lot of actors who work in these things. You know, think about the uh, the true crime. Uh, when you see a, a true crime television show, there's entire channels about true crime. Well, they they reenact that with actors. Um, and so you see more and more of that in in, in documentary. Uh, and it sort of, it just depends um, if you, if, when you're doing older stuff and there's no moving footage, then you either have to use stills or reenactments, or uh, you also have these, you know, recreations, video recreations of things. Um, and, and that's, those are the, the, you know, basically the tools that you've had. You've got stills, you've got moving images, you've got recreations, you've got uh, sort of anime related things, 3D or, 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 or uh, 2D. Uh, animation, uh, and those are the tools that you have. And, and you also, you know, you'll see and use kind of creative edits. Those get old really fast. And then uh, different sort of text and, and, and those sort of things. It's, it, it is the biggest challenge is how do you make a documentary visually interesting? Mm-hmm. And there's really not that many tools to do it. And, it's, and, and the better tools cost more. Wow. It's almost, it sounds like it's almost an art form in, in and of itself to keep to have those visuals to keep the viewer paying attention. It, it is. And it's, it's the most time consuming part of the process is, you know, you get into the edit and you lay out the, the interviews and then you do a voiceover uh, to, to connect those together. And that gives you your story. And then you've got the yeoman's work of figuring out, you know, how do I cover up 90% of that with visuals? And uh, it, it, it's, it's, it's the hardest part of documentary filmmaking, in my opinion. Wow. And if, if someone wants to make a documentary, what's, what's the, what's the process? How are these topics decided on how, what, who decides or how, how does it, what's that process like? If, if I have an idea for a documentary or a topic, how do I uh, start that process? It, it depends. It depends on whether you want to sell it, make any money with it. Uh, hmm. You know, right now is the golden age of filmmaking. There is more product being produced now than ever before. Mm -hmm. And if you're a young person wanting to get into film, 
there are opportunities for you. Uh, but most of the time, what you need to do is a calling card. And what I would say is that if you're new and starting out, you figure out a topic, you find somebody who you can interview and speak to that topic, grab your iPhone and go make a film. Hmm. Uh, the uh, An iPhone 11 or even an iPhone 8 is better. The, the image quality is better than some of the cameras that you used to see you know, people walking around with these enormous cameras on their shoulders. Uh, and so you can make really good films just using, you know, a, a, a camera phone. Um, and so if you're starting out, just go do something. The, the, the thing that, that differentiates people who are and who are not are the people who get something finished. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of people just have ideas uh, and it, one of the th rules of thumb is the first 90% is the easy part. The last 10% of getting it to look professional and get it finished and polished is the hardest part. If you were on a different level and um, you're looking to sell to Netflix or somebody else like that, completely different situation. If mm -hmm. you're unknown, you basically have to go out and, and shoot it yourself and pay for it yourself and then find a producer that has a relationship with Netflix or, or whoever, and they become a, a middleman for you. Um, after you establish yourself, then you're able to sell that idea ahead of time. And you say, look, I'm going to do a film on, you know, Hitler's uh, three, you know, children that nobody knows about or whatever it would be. And, um, and then you sell them on the idea and you already have a track record. And so they figure that you can do it and they give you some, uh, a lot of times they'll give you some earnest money in, in those situations. And sometimes you, you have to raise the capital yourself. But once you've got a distribution deal, the hard thing is always distribution. How do you get it out there to the world? And there's more ways to do that now than there ever has been before. Wow. So over the course of the last you know, 10, 20 years, has the, has the, the, the topics that are chosen for documentaries changed a lot or is, are they the same, uh, type of, of documentaries that people are interested in the most? I think the biggest difference is that because the cost to do documentary filmmaking, filmmaking in general has come down so much um, that there's a lot of things made today that wouldn't have been made before. And um, the beast is hungry. You know, people are looking for content. And, and so sometimes that content gets pretty thin. Uh, so, the, what's different between now and then is that used to, when you're shooting 35 millimeter and all that stuff, you had to have a lot of money, you had to have a lot of planning, you had to have distribution locked down at the beginning and uh, just experimenting and, and running out and, and, and doing something on your own was an impossibility. These days, you can do that uh, and the cost of doing it has, is something that um, you know, most people could put together the money to be able to do it. So the, the big difference is that uh, there's more outlets, that beast is hungry and wants content, and uh, the cost of, get, of creating that content is so much lower than it used to be. There is, to your point about content and the amount of content being made, there's so much content, it's almost hard to keep up. There's so much, there's so many different streaming services and just they're pumping out content constantly. It's almost, it's almost overwhelming. It, it is, and uh, it's really hard to, to keep up with it. There's a, a podcast that I, I, I do called uh, Lovecraft Ezine, and we, we talk about 
weird fiction and, and different pop culture things that are horror related. And it's, it's just difficult to keep up with all the stuff that's out there. And as an indie author, uh, you know, there's like a million books a month that are being, you know, put out, that are being created and distributed now. And so it's really difficult as far as fiction goes, as far as, as, as novels goes, is that there's so much content that it's a snowstorm and it's hard to stand out in it. Uh, in film, uh, the, there, there's a lot of content, but there's always that barrier to breaking through. Um, you know, you can go out on, on Vimeo and there's, there's a lot of great filmmakers out there. There's some, there's some really good stuff that you can find on YouTube and you put that stuff out there because you don't have any other way to distribute it. Hmm. So if I made a documentary about whatever topic it may be, uh, and I put it on YouTube, am I giving up any creative control to YouTube if I, if I put it on a site like YouTube or Vimeo or another, another site like that? You, you, you're not giving up your rights, but um, the once it's in the world and you, you put it out in the world like that, then um, it's no longer fresh content. So if you, you, you can't put it on YouTube and then go try to sell it to somebody to, to put on a channel. Uh, the One of the things that a lot of people are doing now is they're basically giving content away for free. You know, uh, there's a lot of narrative podcasts. There's a lot of, of you know, different projects on YouTube and, and, and things like that. And so that content is put out for free. And there, uh, some people try to monetize that by, you know, having ads on YouTube or selling merchandise or having a Patreon channel, or there, there are different ways to be able to monetize your creative work uh, when you're doing that, that, you know, didn't exist before used to, you know, I, I've actually sold DVDs of, of films that I have made uh, mm. and, and that or it being on the air were the only two distribution models that there were and the only way to monetize that and make any money off of it. And now there are many, many other ways to be able to, uh, to make money. And some of those, you know, you give the content away for free, um, but you're able to find other ways to be able to make money off of that. And, in, and, and most of the time, most of the time, people don't make money. Very, very, very little money. Wow. It's almost like a passion project most of the time, it sounds like. Right. And you can only do that for so long. But, you know, mm. um, you know what you're doing here with this podcast, it's very labor intensive. It's very time consuming. It's, it's obviously something that's a passion for you. Uh, and... Uh, but it eats up lots of your, of your life and you, you put so much into these things and, um, it, it's, it's hard to sustain that over time. It, it really is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> it is. Yeah. And, uh, on your list of, of topics, uh, they had me, the Hatfield and McCoy feud was also on that list. And what can you tell us about that, about that feud? Can you tell us about it for people who aren't very familiar with it? Well, um, I, I grew up on the West Virginia-Kentucky border, basically where the feud happened. And uh, it's the most famous feud in American history. It's not the longest feud. It didn't have the most people that were killed. It's just one of those stories that has stuck in the consciousness of, of America. And there was a, a miniseries that Kevin Costner did, uh, I think in 2015, uh, about that, that just sort of caught fire. And it became the the had the highest viewership of any cable uh, television show ever. Uh, the, the episodes ended up being having more viewership than the Super Bowl. Um, but the story is basically, it's, it's really difficult to encapsulate it just in a few lines, mm -hmm. but it's about these two families 
who uh, became at odds with each other. And uh, they were, were friendly before the Civil War. The Civil War comes along. They actually both fought on the same side in the war for the most part. And then uh, after the war, there are some things that uh, drive them apart. Some of them related to the war, some of them not. And then, um, so the, these two families just basically have it in for each other. And this feud goes on for 25 years where they're killing, you know, family members. Uh, there's a love story in the middle of it, kind of Romeo and Juliet of the Hills, where the, the oldest boy in one family and the oldest girl in another family fall in love. Uh, and she has a child out of wedlock and he won't marry her. And this just adds fuel to the fire. And they just keep killing each other. And it just goes on and on. Kevin Costner actually uh, wrote a song about the Hatfields and McCoys after he was in that show. And the name of the song is Famous for Killing Each Other. And that sort of, the, sort of the encapsulates, uh, encapsulates um, uh, that, that story. Wow. So for a few that lasted so long, uh, why, didn't, why did no agency or anyone step in? Were they just that powerful that they had that kind of control and power? The, the area was so remote. It was hmm. extremely remote. Uh, the world hadn't got there yet. And uh, the, it's not lawless, though. There's actually one of the ironies is um, I've done a lot of TV interviews about this stuff, and I can go on for hours and hours about it. But one of the ironies is that there's actually more court cases and legal proceedings than are murders in the feud. But hmm. for the most part, um, it, was the, it was the Wild West in the East is basically what it was. And, and so there was a lot of, not some, there was a lot of taking the law into your own hands, but there was a lot of basically you had to look out for yourself because hmm. nobody else was going to. Oh, I see. So was there a specific event or, or, or disagreement that led to that kind of kicked things off? Or was it just a number of things that added up and they just... Well, one of the most uh, sort of contested questions is what started the Hatfield-McCoy feud. The early historians considered it to be rooted in the Civil War, and there are mm -hmm. definitely events during the Civil War that, that happened. Um, but the, there's an event right at the end of the Civil War in 1865, but it's almost, it's eight years before the next event and 12 years before the next major event. Um, mm -hmm. And there's a, and that, that major event is the thing called the Hog Trial which is a trial over a hog. And um, the, uh, the McCoys lost that trial and the judge was a Hatfield and they felt like they had gotten a shaft. And that's pretty much when things began to ha really become heated. There was uh, events and killings very, very rapidly after that and major events every two years and minor events on an ongoing basis. And so that event, the hog trial, um, I think that was 1878, was a hog trial, uh, is what a, a lot of historians these days consider to be the, the beginning of the feud. Wow. So how did it end or how did it, did things just taper down on their own? Well, the, again, it's, it's, it's a really complicated story <laughs> uh, that what the, um, toward the end, there was a five-year lull when nothing was happening and everybody thought the feud was over with. And then suddenly the feud kind of starts back up again and uh, the McCoys get these um, uh, uh, law officials in, in Kentucky to start going after the Hatfields after nothing had happened for five years, basically. 
and we don't know exactly why that was and there's a, uh, a debate about what the local reasons were but one of the reasons that is not talked about as enough is that coal was discovered in the region mm. and the Hatfield McCoy feud was famous throughout the throughout the, the America at the time even in other countries but at, at that time famous throughout the, uh, America and it was keeping the, the, the lawless uh, reputation of the area was keeping the money out that they needed to build the railroads to get the coal out. And the Industrial Revolution at that time ran on coal. And there was a huge coal reserves in that area. And so one of the, the things that I think probably had a lot to do with this is that they wanted to get rid of the feud so that they could get this investment in here to get the, the coal out. And so they had to, they rounded up all the Hatfields, put them in jail, put them on trial. Wow. <laughs> yeah. The, the story has one foot in the Civil War and one foot in the American Industrial Re Revolution. And that's one of the things that really, really makes it interesting. And um, uh, the, my, my area of expertise is, is, is that, plus a, a period from about 1890 to 1920, which is the Progressive Era. And the thing that's fascinating about this part of, of, of American history is that our Industrial Revolution was very compressed as a result of the Civil War. Mm -hmm. And in that 30-year span, you went from a person behind, you know, behind a, a, a horse plowing a field to having telephones, uh, radio, moving pictures, uh, cars, the first flight. All that stuff happened in this 30-year period, which is basically when Jules Verne was writing. And so it, it seemed like the world was going to, that we would be in space, you know, and driving flying cars in, in no time. And it was this just unbelievable time of, of rapid change and rapid innovation that um, is only sort of rivaled by our own current time. Yeah, so would you say that we're in the middle of a technological revolution? Oh, absolutely. Um, there's a, an author called Alvin Toffler who writes about a thing he calls the third wave. And uh, the first wave is the agricultural revolution, second wave is industrial revolution, and then the technological revolution, which is what we're in now. And um, it, when you're in the middle of something like this, you just take it for granted that this is what is happening. But if you step back with a lens and you look at all the things, we just got an Alexa for, uh, for Christmas. And, uh, you know, now you, you can just speak into the world and here's a, an artificial intelligence, an AI that uh, will do things for you. It will search the internet. It will turn your lights on and off. It will find, uh, actually, I asked it the other day to play one of my books. And so it went out and got the book and read it to me. And it wasn't an audio book. It was, it was my book, More Than Evil, which has an audio book, but it went out and got the physical book and read it to me. And so, you know, that in your Siri on your phone or, or, or whatever the, the other equivalent is for, uh, for, the, for uh, the other phones, is uh, you have a, 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 an artificial intelligence in your hand. Uh, and so th this, is, this is stuff that was impossible in, you know, in, in science fiction 10, 15 years ago. And that the rapidness of that change is accelerating. Uh, it's... Well, and, and just take the COVID vaccine. The, the, the COVID vaccine, all the vaccines before for a flu basically gave you a little bit of the disease and your body built up immunity. 
the COVID vaccine is completely different. It, it actually, uh, I, I don't know the specifics of it, but it alters, um, uh, it changes your body so that your body produces these uh, antibodies. It doesn't, you know, just give a little the sickness and your body produces them. It can actually just go, you know, jump that step and say, okay, I want you to produce this antibody to fight this particular organism, not just any organism. And so that RNA technology is going to revolutionize medicine. Uh, there'll be cures for diabetes, possibly cures for cancer. Uh, you're going to see a you're going to see a, a biological revolution in the next 20 or 30 years. Wow. With the, with the yeah. technological uh, leaves that we're making in such, such, such a short period of time, are we also, are we also losing sight of what we're giving up? Are we giving up? Uh, can you see us looking back 20, 30 years from now and saying we gave up a lot of our privacy or we give up a lot of our, um, you know, we let these devices and this technology into our homes and we didn't realize what the repercussions would be. Uh, absolutely. But the what happens, um, the things that are struggles right now and the things that are hot topics and, and that there's a lot of, you know, gnashing of teeth over, uh, it becomes folded into of, of the world and then you move on. Uh, if you think about it, in the 50s, divorce was considered a sin. Uh, women were ostracized if they, if they were divorced. Now, 50% of the people that get married in America get divorced. It's just become very common. And you can't even believe that there was this, this view about these things earlier before. And you think about the way that, that people looked at, at race and, and those issues uh, in, the, in the 50s and, and before that, or even you know during slave, the times of slavery when they thought that a certain class of people were subhuman. Um, and so you, you, society evolves. And you have to evolve with that because you're not going back, you know, unless there's a, you know, some sort of an extinction event or some, you know, an apocalyptic event, those things are going to continue to move forward. And um, you have to adapt to that. Uh, it, it's just the way of the world. You know, uh, I, I saw something, uh, it was, it was a, a thing about the, the, the reason that COVID is causing such a disruption in these uh so the production of goods, there was a, a guy that made hot tubs and he, it had 180 parts and they came from 70 different locations and about half of those locations were overseas. And so that complexity becomes built into the system mm -hmm. and you, it, it makes you um, vulnerable to a disruption in that system but every society, the more complex it becomes, the more things that it can do. Uh, you know, you, you think about technologies, papyrus to be able to write, that technology was in a very, very small part of the earth. If we had the ability to, to, to spread that technology throughout the, the world at that time, the, the, the changes would have become more rapid. And that's what's going on in today's world is that every time there's a new discovery, it's shared virtually instantaneously. And, uh, and somebody can build on that and somebody can build on that and somebody can build on that. And so I, 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 we, we will, there will be things that we will regret. There will be things that we will have growing pains over. There will be people who will unplug and, and go away from those things. But the, the, the arrow of time moves forward and you, you have to move forward with it. Wow. That's, that's, that's a, 
Yeah, that's really fast. It's really fascinating the the leaps we're making and what we're what we're giving up. And like you said, it's it's evolves. It's it's an evolving situation. And um, and speaking of things we regret, another one of your topics uh, that you were uh, familiar with was the Great Depression. And I was wondering, are there current trends or um, you know events that make you worry about where we're headed? Well, there can always be disruptions. Um, the The situation of the Great Depression and the, the, the crash of the stock market was sort of unique. There were a number of stock market crashes uh, previous to that. Um, and, and whatever had happened before doesn't, is not going to happen again, but there's always something new, like mm -hmm. uh, the, the, the Great Recession that happened in 2008, 2009. Right. which was basically spurred by derivatives and people making these risky investments, banks making risky investments because they changed the banking laws. And so there's always some new iteration of something that can go wrong. Um, and, you know, the, the, the real challenge of having complex societies is that it just takes one thing to go wrong to stop that process or stop that, you know, set of circumstances. You know, uh, there's been several movies and, and, and lots of books written about basically some sort of an EMP event where uh, a lot of the technology stops functioning overnight, whether it's for a hack or a, a, a you know, a solar flare or whatever it would be. And, uh, and how far back you have to go after that uh, in order to, to, to ramp back up. And those sort of things can happen. But in general, you have to, um, you have, you, you can't prepare for those things that, you know, mm -hmm. if, if people could prepare for those things, then they, they wouldn't be so disruptive and you have to be able to, uh, to move forward. One of the things that, that I say is that if you ever did have a sort of an apocalyptic disruption like that, that the, the people in New York would be dead in 30 days, um, because you know, they're not in a situation where they can raise their own food. They don't really know how to raise their own food. Um, that society is, is very complex and has so many moving parts that you're depending on those parts continuing to move. And the people in West Virginia where I grew up would just keep going as if nothing happened because they can all fix their car and grow their food and uh, work on anything and, and they would just keep on trucking. And they're uh, you know, a, a more sort of a close to the bone society, but they still have those skills that you need to be able to survive. And when you get into very complex societies, you don't have those basic skills of how would you feed yourself? Uh, but the only way to be able to move forward and have progress is to continue into that complexity. Hmm. And you brought up the, you know, everyone in, in major cities would, would lack those kind of skills. And with, with the pandemic, I know a lot of people moved out of the bigger cities. Well, some people moved out of the bigger cities and craving a, a more rural type of lifestyle. Do you see that trend continuing? Absolutely. That will absolutely continue. Uh, as more and more people realize uh, that they can work remotely, they're going to do it. And the companies, my brother's company, uh, he's a database administrator for, uh, uh, they do services for banks. They realized that it was cheaper, that all this, you know, overhead that they had spent, they had, you know, a cafeteria and, and you know, have all these people that are, you know, doing maintenance on the buildings and all this kind of stuff and your overhead and your insurance and all that stuff. They just got rid of all that stuff. And these people were all working from home. And I was talking uh, to a gentleman the other day who uh, worked for uh, a major telecom company. He wouldn't tell me the name of it. 
And he said that they had found that people working from home, their productivity actually went up. Hmm. And so the companies are saving money. The productivity is going up. So that is absolutely going to become much more prevalent over time. And I just met a girl who she worked in uh, Detroit and moved to uh, Florida and she lives, she can see the, the, the beach from her house, but she's still working in Detroit. So she has the best of both worlds. She has a high paying job from a major city, but she lives, you know, 50 feet from the water. Wow. Yeah. yeah it's, it's really, really fascinating. I, I was wondering how many people would, would get tired of the more rural lifestyle and move to a bigger city because the, because of the conveniences and the, you know, that's, you can go out and get a, a meal at any, any time at night, or you can do, there's all these different lifestyle things you can do. So that's, I think that's really interesting. The, one of the things that changes is once you have children, yeah. uh, you're, you know, you're not doing the lifestyle, you're not doing the, the, the late night, those kind of things. You're raising your children. You want a place that's safer and calmer. Um, and so the people you see who are doing the exit are people whose lives are already pretty much set and, and they have children and they're looking for that. The, the folks that are younger, that are under 30 and under 40, uh, those people are going to continue to look for those, that, that excitement. Um, and like for myself, uh, I go to New York a couple of times a year and basically I get a hundred dollar plane flight and go see some shows or, and maybe go to comic con or whatever it happens to be. And, um, if you talk to somebody who's living in the city and, you know, they're, like I said, established and got their kids, you know, they might go to, you know, one Broadway show a year. Well, so do I. So, yeah. it, you know, these days you're able to be able to, to still do those things, even if you don't live in that city. Hmm. Yeah. It, flights are really cheap right now too. So it yeah. makes it a little more convenient. And something that I, um, really that fascinates me too is the way, the horror genre changes throughout through the decades and through the years. And you look at what was popular in the seventies or the eighties or the nineties, or even today, how that reflects what the cultural changes or the, the history of the time, uh, what, what stands out to you during the last, I don't know, 30 or 40 years and how, how the horror genre has changed. Well, what, one of the things is that, you know, in the seventies and eighties, which was one of the golden ages of horror, it's when Stephen King made his bones and, and uh, it, it was popularized. And then there was a glut and then a crash after that. And it became, uh, you, you started hearing people say urban fantasy and uh, supernatural action and, and things like that to, because they didn't want to say the word horror. And there's still some of that. Uh, I'll show you this. So what, one of the things that, that I, I do the covers for my books, and, and this is, not, is, I'm not just doing this for the plug, but uh, this is Hellfighters. And the cover here is, camera's backwards, so you'll you forgive me for that. So the cover is basically, I did the cover here. And that, that's mm. a picture of me uh, that I, I did some things too. Wow. Uh, most of the books, though, that you see today, they're ashamed to be horror. This is a very in your face sort of a horror cover, but most of the ones you see are very subtle. It's a, a silhouette or uh, it's a creepy looking house. And the reason is, is that publishers are still sort of embarrassed to say, oh, this is a horror book. They're trying to, to sort of soft pedal the fact that it's a scary book. Mm -hmm. uh, 
which is a frustration for me because I like the stuff that's, you know, just right there in your face. Um, and so the, it, it's, it, it, it basically became the, to, got to the point where horror was, you know, the bomb in the 70s and 80s. And then people were embarrassed to say that they were horror writers. Uh, mm-hmm. And that pendulum is beginning to go the other way. Uh, and you're seeing more and more horror content. Uh, and what's fascinating to me is that there's such a, uh, I, I love horror and it's, it's an area I love to, to work in. I've done films and books and everything else. Um, is that, you know, okay, I, I like crime. I like crime novels, but there's not a lot of crime conventions out there. There are horror cons all throughout the year. Uh, and there are uh, you know, publishers that do almost strictly horror. And there are, you know, comic book publishers that do a whole lot of horror. It's, it, you know, people seem to be embarrassed as, your, as a publisher to say, oh, we do horror, but there's a huge amount of content out there. And there's also a huge audience out there, which incidentally uh, is about 60% women. Hmm. Wow. And there's a lot of really great women authors right now too, that are doing a great job. Yeah. There, there's, there has been an explosion in, in really good, uh, you know, women authors and, and, and in the publishing industry, um, it's actually kind of turned on its head. Most of the agents are women. Most of the, the uh, editors are women. Most of the, uh, the, 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 the people who are the gatekeepers for your book to go through are women. And most of the readers are women. When you get into things outside of horror, uh, uh, 70% of the reading population are women. And, uh, and so if, you're, if your books do not appeal to that audience or, or can't bridge that to that audience, uh, you're not going anywhere. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. That's so what happened that, that the pendulum swung in the other way that, that bubble did a bubble burst or what happened that, that, uh, publishers or they shied away from the more in your face type of horror. Uh, I, 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 I'm, I, you know, I don't know. I was making films at that time and, and, and wasn't writing, uh, what wasn't writing prose at the time. But you, you see that there's always these waves in, in publishing other things that are that are hot, and uh, they're they're hot for a while. Uh, you know, right now there's a lot of you know every um, every page for either an agent or or a book publisher. Um, there's something on there about you know we want to we want to promote diversity and do a lot of own voices and, and and that sort of stuff. And you know there's a big trend right now to be able to have lots of different kinds of writers and all that kind of stuff. And it's, that's awesome. Um, but that, but it's, it's interesting that everybody's asking for those same things and you sort of see the pendulum swinging in that and you wonder, you know, will that continue? Will it grow or will it, you know, eventually become something that, that goes back the other way? And that's not about, you know, I'm not saying that because of, of, of race or gender or any of those kind of things. It's just that, you, you, you see that sort of thing happen with with every media is that there's something that is really uh, out there and hot and usually it doesn't have anything to do with, with you know who the who the writers are uh, but there's a story or um, you know right now the thing that you don't want to do is put out a book about a pandemic because yeah. nobody wants to read that right now <laughs> nobody wants to read that they're already scared in real life they don't want to read that. But after this is over in five or 10 years, people are going to want to revisit that 
and sort of exercise the demons that that got into them during you know all this you know horrible time and that will be something that will be popular again but right now uh those sort of medical thrillers and pandemics nobody wants to read that no we can watch we can look outside for that <laughs> yeah exactly it's scary enough in real life yeah and all of my non-horror friends ask me what what is the appeal of horror why do you why do you like to read those type of books why do you like to watch those type of movies and what's the appeal for you well one of the things that i say is that horror asks the big questions and it deals with the big issues hmm. um i like crime fiction but if you think about crime fiction it's pretty much a formula there's a there's a you know your protagonist somebody gets killed you got to figure out who it is there's a few hurdles here and there you end up solving the crime and not very very much changes and and but when you read those books you enjoy them but you know it doesn't really change the world very much um when you're talking about horror fiction you know you're dealing with the big questions you're dealing with what happens after you die is there a god is there a devil what is the nature of life what is the nature of being what is out there beyond what i can see and to me those are the big questions of life and horror is really the only genre that sort of deals with that and does it consistently and does it in an entertaining way and 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 that's one of the things that i i enjoy about horror uh but i've enjoyed being scared since i was a kid so uh you know you and the thing about horror entertainment is that you live vicariously through that uh you get to be scared in a safe way just like a roller coaster you know it, it's that same it's a thrill but when it's over with you're not dead <laughs> yeah that's true yeah. yeah and uh you also have experience with comic books and i wanted to ask you about the the current state of the comic book industry if you're familiar with that is uh it seems like their comic book industry is in, in a little bit of trouble it seems like well, the, the pandemic has been a huge blow to, to comics. Uh, actually, reading went up overall, and, and you mm -hmm. saw uh, you know, people spending a lot more time reading. Sales of, of books in general went up during the pandemic. And of course, you know, viewership of, of television and movie you know, at home really, really skyrocketed. Uh, but comics is one of the things that has, uh, has suffered a little bit. And, and the thing about a comic book that people don't realize is that it costs about 10 grand to make one issue of a comic book. Really? And so, yeah, oh yeah. Wow. Oh, wow. Uh, absolutely. And I have made, I have made books for two or three grand an issue, but that's really, really inexpensive. Um, if you're looking at a, a major or even a, a mid-major publisher, um, you're looking at 10 grand a book and you've got to sell a lot of books to make 10 grand back. And it's a very, very difficult thing to do. Uh, wow. Yeah. And, and, you know, there's, again, it's just, it's a collaborative medium, just like film where you have a situation where, um, uh, you, you can be the greatest writer on earth, but if your artist doesn't come through or your colorist doesn't come through, uh, and, 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 you know, do the work that it, it needs to have, then, um, the whole book fails because, you know, th those people were, you know, weren't able to bring their, uh, their A game for whatever reason. Um, but it's, it is a, is a difficult business. The, uh, the, the downloading though is, is creating, uh, 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 some options there as well. 
you know, used to the only way you could get your books out to the world was if there was a publisher who was willing to publish it. Well, you can go around that now on Comixology or, or self-distribution or, or, or different ways. Uh, or, or on Amazon very soon, comic books are coming to, to Amazon in a different way than they were before because Amazon mm -hmm. owns Comixology. Um, but uh, it's, again, uh, there's a lot of content out there. It's hard to know what's the good content. And one of the things in every medium, and this is, it's sad, but it's true. Um, I'm not sure we would know who Stephen King was if uh, Carrie hadn't become a, a, a blockbuster film. And, and, and several of his books became made into films at the time. Uh, a lot of comic books became, you know, like 30 Days of Night became, you know, big films uh, and launched a lot of careers. And comic books there for a while were basically just pitches to be able to get a film project. Um, so uh, these days, uh, it's, it's all about trying to get film adaptions of your work because that catapults it into a different viewership. And uh, it, it's, it becomes a, a, a way to just change your life as far as, as being a creative. And, but it's very, very hard to do that. Wow. So it's almost as if the, it's not viable, it's not a viable business unless you're an established publisher like uh, Marvel or DC or even Image, I think would be, uh, I think they're doing fairly well now, but they're um, creator owned. So how, how, much, how much different is it to go through a publisher like Image versus or a top cow or, or another one of those uh, creator-owned publishers versus Marvel or DC? Well, the thing about Marvel and DC, it, it's in all creative jobs, there's more people wanting the jobs than there are jobs. Yeah. And, um, and the margins, you know, for a, a DC or a Marvel book, those books don't cost 10 grand to create. Those books cost 30 grand to create. Uh, and so, you know, those margins become very, very slim. Uh, and so the only way you break through, you know, in the big leagues is by making your bones in the minors. Uh, whether that's, like you said, with, you know, with a, uh, an alterna or, uh, you know, something on image or, or the, those sort of things. Uh, you, you make your bones in the minor leagues. That's the way that you get the jobs in, in the big leagues. Or you, you know, you work as an editor at them and then try to get over into the creative side. Hmm. Wow. So what kind of comics do you enjoy reading? Uh, I like scary stuff. I, I, when I was a kid, uh, I, I, I joked that Stan Lee taught me to read. My brother handed me down his comic <laughs> books and, uh, you know, I'd look at the pictures and try to figure out the words. And I would go get a dictionary a little bit later on and, and look up big words and try to figure out what they were. Uh, and I was completely immersed in, in the Marvel superhero books. Um, these days, I don't, I don't read a lot of those. I, I still enjoy the movies and, and, and pick up the occasional book. But I read a, a, I, I read a lot of horror and science fiction when it, when it comes to comics. Uh, and there's a, lot of, there's a lot of content out there, especially in horror, uh, a little bit less in, in science fiction, speculative stuff. But in general, I like the genres and I, I like the, the speculative things. So for someone looking for some good horror comics, who, what would you recommend to them? Um, I, I'm not going to be able to give you anything that's, that's really current. Uh, I'll be mm -hmm. honest with you. The, the reason is, is that um, I write 12 hours a day. I'm working on a, you know, creating content 
12 hours a day, uh, whether it's marketing it or writing it or whatever. And so I spend so much time producing that I, I've really fallen behind in, in, in getting to be a consumer of that material. Mm -hmm. um, but in general, you know, if you're if you find a Grant Morrison book, you found a book that, you know, is, is going to be something that uh, you're going to be entertained by. And sometimes your eyes are going to be open. You're going to be challenged by. I'll, I'll tell you an older book that uh, basically the Matrix ripped it off is a book called The Invisibles by Grant Morrison. It was mm -hmm. uh, it was like three sets of, of 12 or 16 issues of that book. And it, it was a. Uh, um, I think it was a, I can't remember if it was a vertigo. I think it was a vertigo book. It might have been an image book. Um, but that, that's that been out a long time. But if you haven't seen that, if you haven't read that book, go get it. Uh, Grant Morrison, in general, is an amazing writer. Uh, not everything that he does you're going to love, but there's going to be, you know, especially his, his creator-owned or um, not working for somebody else uh, stuff is really good. Uh, I'm a big collector of art. I have tons of art. You can see some of it behind me here. Uh, I think this one, of course, everything's reversed here, so I gotta be careful with that. Uh, that right there is Alex Ross, the guy that did the Kingdom Come books, which is a really good book if you've not read it. Uh, and uh, I, I create, I collect Dave McKean and Jack Kirby, who's like you know the god of, of comic book art. Uh, uh, Frank Frazetta, mm -hmm. lots of, there, there's lots of people. Dave Finch right now is, is an amazing penciler. He's one of the best pencilers to ever live. Um, and, and, but they're also, what I try to do is I look for an artist or a writer uh, in order to, to help me determine whether it's, it's something that I'm, I'm going to enjoy. And then, you know, I, I just listen to other people, um, you know, who are uh, consuming that material and have, have sort of vetted it for me. But unfortunately, these days, I, I, I just do not have the time to be able to spend as much on it as, as I would like. I, speaking of Grant Morrison, I think he wrote Nameless uh, from Image. That mm -hmm. was the one that I, I really enjoyed. He did write that. And it's an excellent story. Um, mm -hmm. I, I think Invisibles is three times better than that story. <clears throat> it's uh, You need to go check that out if you haven't read it. Uh, Preacher, there was a TV series done on Preacher uh, not long ago, but the comic books are way, way better than the, than, than the television show was. Um, and Steve Niles, you know, the guy who did 30 Days a Night, Steve has cranked out a lot of really good stuff. He's a, he's a really good person and, uh, and a, an enormously talented writer. Um, but, but, you know, what I try to do is I try to, you know, get the guys that I know that are going to be able to deliver because I just don't have the time uh, that I used to have to be able to, to go through content. And so I tend to go for the guys that I, I know are going to uh, bring it. Yeah, I'm a, big Garth, I'm a big Garth Ennis fan, and I was really disappointed I, with the series. I was really bummed out with that series. I, I guess I can see where they were trying to go with it and started off too, you know, slower and ease into the story, but I, it's such a missed opportunity. I was really disappointed with it. It is run on Hellblazer is amazing. Uh, mm. And it's, you know, it's, it's years, uh, I guess it's probably 25 years ago that his run on Hellblazer, but it's, it's, it's an amazing run. Um, the original Hellblazer, I think comic ran for 300 issues. And I think I've got all but about 10 issues of that book. Um, but that, that's, that, that is a long running high quality, uh, Vertigo book and the Neil Gaiman stuff, you know, is of course, you know, everybody knows that. Yeah. 
He's yeah, he's amazing. Yeah. And with with the success of the of the Marvel movies, especially, I also it, it, does it surprise you that it hasn't helped comic book sales as much as maybe some people thought? Uh, it is right. I think it surprised everybody. Um, I, 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 I'm not really sure. I, I don't think anybody really knows why that's, that's been the case. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things on a semi-related topic to that, I, I spend a lot of time thinking about what makes a book or creative project live long. What, you know, what, what does it take to read a, for something to be read a hundred years from now? And I've come to the conclusion that there are, there are a few things. One of them, it's not story so much as it is character. Uh, if you read the original Frankenstein or Dracula books that have both been around for a couple hundred years, uh, the, the prose in them is, is not something that's very comfortable. They're done with letters and all this kind of stuff. And um, it, it's it, just reading them is, is cumbersome for a modern audience. And... The, the story is good in, in sort of a, the, the spine of the story is good, but the, the reinterpretations of those characters over and over again, just like we've done with Sherlock Holmes, <clears throat> is what has made those books live for a very, very long time. The other thing is characters that are archetypes. And I'll bring this back to comic books. I think... The, these archetypes that Stan Lee created, him and Jack Kirby and a couple of other artists, uh, like the Hulk. The Hulk is basically Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. That's what the Hulk is. Mm-hmm. Uh, Thor is an archetype of a god who has fallen to Earth, like the Hercules mythology. Uh, and so those archetypal characters, like Batman is the vigilante, Superman is, you know, Superman is basically an alien, but you don't really think of Superman being an alien. Um, those archetypal characters are ones that every succeeding generation can reinterpret and whatever new paradigm comes along or new situation comes along, you can, you can build, you can form them into that seamlessly. And that's another thing that makes, that makes things live a long time. And I think people will be, um, those Marvel characters that, that, that Stan Lee and, and Kirby and those guys created, those are going to be around for uh, not just hundreds of years. They could be around for thousands of years because I've read those comic books for a very, very long time now and, and seen how new writers reinterpret them uh, for a, a new age and a new audience. And you're able to imprint those things onto these pre-existing archetypal characters um, like Gilgamesh you know, or, or Hercules or those kind of characters. And, um, and, and I, I think those Marvel stories, I don't know why the, the comics don't, you know, have not gone up in sales, but I do know that the reason the movies have been successful and the comic books have been around for so long is that they have these archetypes at the, at the core of them. And I think a lot of people ask with, with audiences willing to go spend their money to watch these Marvel movies, why were the, why were the DC movies not as successful? Well, um, one of the things that you have to remember is one of the first Marvel movies was um, uh, Ang Lee's Hulk, and mm-hmm. it died at the box office. 
And the reason was, is that there's 45 minutes in that movie before anything happens. Yeah. Um, and, and then when it does begin to happen, it, it's become sort of convoluted. Uh, and so my point of that is that it depends on who's behind it. Ang Lee has done some great movies. It's, it's it, you know, I'm just saying that it depends on whether you pull it off or not. Mm-hmm. And, um, I, I have a specific opinion. I, I just don't think that the DC movies had were shepherded along uh, the way that the Marvel movies have become. But the Marvel movies weren't in the beginning either. You know, the Marvel movies were, were different uh, companies. Uh, you know, Universal had some, Sony had some. Uh, now Disney is trying to pull all those back together. Uh, but it's, it's basically because those it's it's very difficult to make a good movie you know think about all the bad movies that you've seen and all the mediocre movies that you've seen it is very difficult to make a good movie even with these archetypes and these 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 great characters and um you know the the dc they they just i don't think it's it's a flaw in in the characters that they've got i think it's more in the execution um I'll tell you a little quick behind the scenes story. Uh, so uh, the Mad Max movies are Warner Brothers movies. Mm-hmm. And Warner Brothers basically owns DC Comics. Right. And there was, remember when Thunder Road was coming out, and I try, I had a, a comic idea uh, to be able to do a Mad Max book. And so there's a big budget movie. There's a lot of noise about it. There hasn't been one in forever. And I contacted everybody at DC that I could possibly contact and said, you need to do a Mad Max book. Here's this is a big budget movie. There's a tie-in. You do a comic book. There's a movie. They'll work with each other. And what I was told was, is that we don't do movie tie-ins. Hmm. It's your own company's create, you know, it's, it's, it's own product its own storyline, its own IP. And you're not going to monetize that. You're not going to go all the way up and down the, the ladder and, and, and take advantage of this big event uh, mm-hmm. that was going on. And so that kind of thinking is the reason that the DC movies, I, I think, have not, have not worked, is that there's not a person with a vision at Warner Brothers uh, who's been able to, you know, shepherd those things through. Hmm. Yeah, I think having that singular vision has really helped out, have, you know, set them on a path instead of it being so, such a mess and not knowing what they're doing. And right. it's, it's really disappointing. Yeah, and um, I, I have a specific reason, I think, but I, it's not something I can talk about. Okay. <laughs> Let's just say that, if you go back and look at the DC movies and look at the creative force behind most of them, uh, it, it, it's the it's you know over and over again they've not executed, and uh, I, I think that's they keep giving they keep getting opportunities, but they don't but they don't execute, and I, I think that that's got a lot to do with it myself. Yeah, I, I, and I hear a lot of people say a lot of 
well, a lot of people have told me that they really love the MCU. They love the Marvel movies, but after Avengers, uh, the, the last Avengers movie, that they're kind of just done with it. And of course, Spider Man goes out and makes you know record profits this weekend. But do you do you think that that bubble is? Do you think there's some fatigue with superhero movies and that kind of architect that genre? I, I think that there was, and uh, I think that you know everything built to this this point of of Endgame, uh, which isn't. You know, con you know, it's not uh, uh, by chance it was called Endgame. Uh, yeah. But then, you know, uh, Kevin Fears is, is, is backed up and sort of began to rebuild again. Uh, and I think that one of the things the pandemic has is, is taught us is that people want some escapism. Mm. And I think that uh, I think that people will, will, will want some more of that. I think they'll want different things. And Marvel has this amazing um, bench of, of, of characters. You know, we, we've gotten to see all these, these great characters, which are the A-line Marvel characters. But, um, you know, there's characters like Machine Man, which is this android with, with human emotions. You know, there's lots of things you can do with that. There's characters like Deathlock. That's this guy who was brought back from the dead, and he's got all this um, bionics that are added to him. So they, they have got so many characters that are these wonderful archetypes that I was talking about before that they will be able to bring back again and again. Uh, an interesting thing is that Kingsman, um, and there's a movie out right now called King's Man, which is a prequel to those, those uh, Kingsman movies. That's a Marvel product. That's a Marvel mm -hmm. book. Uh, and so they're, you know, people don't know that, but they, you know, that those movies have been, been quite popular. And so Marvel has just an enormous IP that it can bring out and do things that are not big budget, you know, superhero books. Um, and, and so th they've got a lot of, they got a lot of stuff in the closet. So, uh, but, but so does DC. I mean, the, the thing DC has not done is bring out all the great stuff that, that is Vertigo product. Um, uh, they did a, a really terrible John Constantine movie, uh, not terrible, but one that just didn't work because um, they they didn't stick with what made that book work. Um, it needed to be a smaller movie and and not one with you know necessarily a big you know a a list uh, actor at the, the head of it. But both of those companies they have they've got a huge amount of great content. And they will find ways to uh, to bring that out. And Marvel has the advantage of having Disney behind them now. Uh, and, and Disney spent billions of dollars on Marvel and Star Wars. And uh, they're going to find different ways to be able to formulate that content and find an audience for it. Yeah, definitely. And uh, how, how big is your comic book collection? Uh, it's probably less than 10,000. Wow, what's your what's your favorite book in your collection? Maybe not the most, uh, the most you know, the, worth the most amount of money, or just your favorite book. A single book. If it would be a single book, it would uh, it would be probably two. Uh, Giant Size X Men number one, which is is the mm. book that you know introduced the X Men that you know everybody loves now, um, and I've got. Uh, Fantastic Four, number four, which is the first Doctor Doom. And I, I, I love Doctor Doom. He's a great villain. He's, he's another archetype. Um, those are probably my two favorite 
books to, to, to just the, that I own them. You know yeah. that. And the in the, in the case of uh, Giant Size X Men number one, I bought it on the stand. You know, I, I bought those wow. first X Men books off a of spinner rack and still have those. Uh, and and so that makes them you know close to my heart. Um, and I had a good story behind getting Fantastic Four number four. Uh, but uh, but I also prefer the books that I, I can just read, you know, things like The Invisibles and and uh, that long run of, of Hellblazer and, and so many of those great Vertigo books uh, that, that changed comics. Vertigo completely changed comics. Comics were all uh, superheroes before Vertigo. And now comics are so many other things these days. And that's, that's really because of Karen Berger and, and the things that went on there at Vertigo. Yeah, it's really, it was really sad when they, uh, they closed Vertigo that, when that all ended. Yeah, and I think that's an, another uh, a reason that I think DC is has not done as well as Marvel. I don't think they recognize um, uh, how to how to exploit that content in a way that that you know is, is going to make money for for readers. And again, it's really expensive to do it, but um, to to create those books. But I, I just I think that that kind of stinking thinking is the reason that you know Marvel has cleaned DC's clock. Well, and with with Amazon getting into comics and self-published comics, is would you think that Am should Marvel and DC be worried about that? Uh, no, because the thing that makes Marvel and DC work are the, those archetypal A-list characters mm -hmm. that they have that are household names for for most people. Um, the, those that IP that they have there is something that, unless they just do stupid things. Uh, they'll be able to continue to, uh, you know, exploit and uh, and produce for a hundred years if they want. Yeah. And how did you get Fantastic Four number four? Uh, it was it was just a, a, a weird thing. I was at a comic book convention, a little, just a little, like ho you know, in somebody's hotel basement, and um, I picked up several things that, that were pretty good. And this guy was, he was closing out. He was getting rid of his collection. Uh, he was done. And um, it was, I can't remember how much it was. I think it was $800. And I had to go to an ATM and borrow some money from somebody to be able to buy it. And um, I, I remember thinking, man, this is a really stupid idea. This is a lot of money. I really shouldn't be doing this. And the other day, one sold for like uh, $80,000 or something like that, something stupid like that. Um, and it was just the fact that it was one of those, I've had several of these things where there was something that I got and I thought, this is too much. I'm really stretching here. This I don't think this is a good idea, but I think I'm going to do it anyway. And it ended up being a really good idea in the long run. <laughs> yeah, <I'd say. laughs> that's a good thing. And I've had a few of those that I didn't do that I really wish I had done. Let me tell you yeah. one of those. Uh, uh, Todd McFarlane, uh, his his art these days, just a page from a, a Spider-Man book, goes for fifty thousand dollars. His covers go for over a hundred thousand dollars. And um, there was a, an issue from Amazing Spider-Man three hundred, which was the first Venom. Um, it might have been it might have been three hundred one, which is the first story event. But anyway, it was this. It was a third the, the the book had venom all over it. it was the first full venom story 
And I agonized over that and agonized. It was $330. And I thought, I, I just can't spend that. I, I, I'd never bought anything that expensive at the time. And honest to God, that page would be $80,000 today. <laughs> wow. So, you know, sometimes you win them, sometimes you just crash and burn. Yeah. It, I always wonder, do you regret the things more that you do or the things you don't do? Uh, I try not to regret any of them. You know, you, <laughs> you, you make the best decision you can at the time. And, you know, you're going to have stories about the one that got away or the, 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 the big deal that you did. Um, I, I sold stuff that I wish I had it now because it's worth a mint today. But, yeah. you know, you just do what you do and you, you move forward um, and try to have some fun along the way. Yeah, that's it. That's it. And speaking of having fun, you've done a lot of travel. And I wonder, what, what are your, some of your favorite places to travel? Um, the craziest trip I ever took was to Egypt. I'll, I'll, I'll give you an Egypt story. So my, my wife is sort of terrified in general. Um, uh, and whoops, nope. and drink again. Um, so my wife is uh, very risk averse and I had begun to get her to travel. We'd gone to Europe and some other places and, uh, I was sort of getting her, uh, built up to some scarier and scarier things. And uh, I got her to go to Egypt with me. And so we land at two o'clock in the morning and we had uh, just been to Venice and we had, we had dressed up for carnival in Venice and had these big elaborate costumes. And we had them in our, in our luggage, these big enormous bags to be able to get these costumes in. And so we land in this airport at two o'clock in the morning. Nobody speaks English. And this little sort of a fire plug of a mean looking guy uh, wants to search our luggage. And so I say, uh, I, I look at the luggage and I flip it over because I know the way that it's packed and all these costumes are going to spill out if he opens it the way he does. So I turn it over and then he takes it, turns it back the other way yeah. and he opens it. And of course, this stuff goes everywhere. And uh, and then we we go through all that, that it's dark, it's dingy. There's no lights. So we get in a, a in our van, we're traveling out. And as you get further and further away from the, the city, uh, the number of lights begins to diminish and the road gets rickettier and rickettier. And, um, and then we pull off on an off ramp and the road goes to dirt. And we had seen all these buildings that looked like Beirut, that looked like blasted out buildings. And by this time it's four o'clock in the morning. And we get on this dirt road and suddenly there's uh, fires burning in garbage cans. There's trash everywhere. The entire median between these two roads, uh, the road going in, in, north and south, were just full of garbage. There's people out on the street walking around at four o'clock in the morning. And, you know, it's it's. You know, it's a it's a it's a Muslim country and you, you, you worry about all those things as, as being an American. And then we pull up to this stop sign and 10 guys on horseback go riding past us. And, you know, it was just this odd, weird thing out of nowhere that we just couldn't, you know, just didn't make any sense. Guys on horseback at four o'clock in the morning with fires burning everywhere. And uh, we were terrified. I usually don't get scared in these situations, but I was I was freaking out and trying not to show it because my wife was. And uh, and then we get and have to go through this checkpoint. 
and the, the, the car has to slow down and go through this zigzag sort of a checkpoint. And there's these scary looking guys with submachine guns that are looking in your car and all this kind of stuff. And then we pull up to our hotel and the driver who's not got very good English looks at us and he looks at the hotel and then he looks at us and he says, are you sure about this? Oh no. <laughs> and we say, yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we vetted it and all this kind of stuff. And he says, I will stay here until you get inside. So he goes inside. Uh, we, we, we have to call this guy. This guy comes stumbling down the stairs. He's, he's half asleep. Uh, he grabs up. This guy is probably four feet tall, and he grabs these enormous bags that we've got all this stuff in. Takes him upstairs. We collapse into the bed and uh, just thankful that we're still alive. And then we wake up the next morning and open the curtain and... Our window is full of the pyramids of Giza and the Sphinx. The, the a hotel is right in front of the Sphinx. And you've got this amazing view. And uh, I've actually got a video of it someplace on Facebook. And it's just that, you know, we went through being terrified. And then when the sun came up, you know, you're standing on Giza. And, you know, I could... I can throw a rock and hit the Sphinx. It was just, you know, it was just this amazing ride that had this, you know, wonderful ending, fortunately. Yeah. Even, and the pyramids especially are just so, you you wonder how did, how did somebody, especially then build something so just amazing? It's just, it's, it's wild. It, it is. And, um, you know, one of the things that, uh, that it's interesting is most of those amazing feats in in human history are connected to religion. It, mm. it in in you know it's it's faith that drove people to take these enormous risks and go to these enormous lengths to be able to create those things in the in the ancient world. Uh, most of them were you know connected to faith in in, in one way or another. Mm. Yeah, you're right. I never thought of it that way. It's true. Yeah. Yeah. And you're also you've also seen great works of art all over the world, and I wondered what was the one piece that was most uh, awe striking to you. The most interesting experience that I had, uh, you know, it's it's hard to compare, you know, the Mona Lisa to, uh, you know, something like uh, the Last Supper. You know, they're they're amazing and they're breathtaking in their own way. And um, one of the most emotional experiences I had was, was at the Last Supper. Uh, mm. We went to, to the city of Milan just to be able to see the, the Last Supper. And it's a hermetically sealed room that you can only be in for 15 minutes at a time and you can only have 15 people. And to be able to, to go in there and, and have that little bit of time with, with this amazing work of art was was very emotional for me and when i got back in the, the bus to leave i began to weep and it was completely unexpected I, I i really don't know why it happened today but on that trip we had just made a run through through italy and seen these amazing works of art and that was sort of the last one and sort of the capstone and uh, I'm, I'm about to tear up now to think that as a kid um these things that you had read about and and saw and 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 thought were unreachable 
and to have gotten to see so many of those. I saw the David on that trip and Pieta and so many other things. And that was the capstone of it. And and just that, that I had the opportunity to be able to be so lucky to get to see those things. I just wept. I just wept uncontrollably. I'm about to start doing it right now. Uh, it just touched me that I just felt so grateful, just so grateful for that. Um, and, and I'll tell you one other one that it's, it's, it's almost the opposite of that. I was in Russia just after the wall fell or just after the Soviet Union fell. And um, I was at this little museum and I was, was walking around and there were, uh, you know, the, the things in, in, in Russia at that time weren't in the, uh, the books about the, the, these different artists because the Soviet Union had been closed and there were so many works of art that didn't appear in books and that you didn't really get to see and read about. And so I'm walking around at this little museum, in the Pushkin Museum. And I walked up to this painting and I, I just looked at it. And it's a painting called The Exercise Yard. And uh, it's one of the last paintings that Van Gogh did. And there's this really squashed perspective of these four walls. And these men in this prison are walking around in a circle to get exercise. And the guy nearest you in that circle is looking back over his shoulder at the viewer. And he has this look of such abject sadness on his face. Mm. And it was one of the very last paintings Van Gogh did before he killed himself. Mm. And the, the hurt and the longing in that man's face as he looked out at me just reached across those hundreds of years. And I felt like I was looking into Van Gogh's eyes and, and how he felt at that time. And um, that was a truly, truly moving experience. Hmm. Wow. And, and that amazing. is what art does. Mm -hmm. That is what art does, is that it communicates emotion and it connects people over decades or centuries. And that's what makes art such an amazing thing, whether it's visual art, or whether it's film or whether it's, it's, it's books, is that, uh, that ability to reach across time and touch people. Hmm. Wow, that's really powerful. I, it's hard to segue off of that, hard to transition off of something <laughs> like that. But uh, So I wanted to ask you about your writing process and, and for, for someone that's a newer author wanting to break in and wanting to get their book published, what's some advice you would give them? The first thing is finish something. That's that's the number one hurdle. The difference between writer and not being a writer is the fact that you finished a book or a short story or whatever it happens to be that you, you choose to do. Mm -hmm. um, the, most people that, you know, a lot of people talk about, you know, wanting to do things and that mm -hmm. sort of becomes a way to exercise that demon instead of actually doing the thing. And so you actually have to do the work. You have, to get the, you have to get your project finished and you have to get your project looking professional. You know, you've got to have a proofreader and you, you know, have to have some, you know, pre-readers and, uh, you know, beta readers and that kind of stuff to, to get that book to where it's good, whatever it is. And so the, the number one thing is to finish something 
and to, 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 to do it as professionally as you possibly can. Uh, at that point, the uh, used to the only way that you could ever get that book out into the world was to find an agent and sell them on that book. And then that agent would in turn sell a, uh, an editor and uh, that book would go out into the world. There's a lot more options these days. And uh, you have Amazon and a lot of other ways to be able to self-publish books. Uh, the truth is, is that for, for being an indie writer, because of the, the enormous amount of content that's out there, um, it's very, very difficult to stand out in a, in a, in a crowd. But if you, if you get a book and you get it done and you go through a number of agents and you're not, not able to get that book out there through a, a, a publisher, then get that book out in the world. Get that book out into the hands of people uh, if you have to give the book away. Build a readership. Get that book out to people and let people discover your work uh, and, 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 and find out that, that, that your work is, is, is amazing and, and good quality. And then, um, and then you build a readership. Uh, hmm. And that's a slow process, and it's, um, it's a difficult process, and it's a frustrating process, too. But, um, you know, that's, that, that's basically the way that you, you have to go about it. And then from there, you build an audience, and then you eventually, honestly, you have to end up going back and getting an agent and, and, a, and a, a bigger publisher to be able to get that, that work distributed out into, into the world. And that's, hmm. that's kind of the, your options. For, for someone who's just starting out or writing their first book or even their second book, would you recommend uh, newer authors staying away from boutique publishers? Or Because I've, I've heard some some not so uh, positive stories about some boutique publishers that take advantage of the people who don't know as much or don't know the industry as well. Well, you have to do your research. I mean, here's your creative work. Um, a lot of times you're just so relieved that somebody wants to take that book on that you don't even, you know, stop and, and do your due diligence on that, on that publisher. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you get a contract and you barely read it because you're just so thankful that you've got a contract that you don't care. Um, and that's just, the, that's just the wrong way to go, that you're just asking for trouble in those situations. You know, you have to begin, you have to do the, um, you have to do your research. And the first thing you do, here's the easiest thing in the world to do, is if there's somebody that wants to put your book out, uh, go to their webpage and look at the covers. If the mm. covers are well done and professional, that's the first thing. Uh, if they're not, then these people are not serious. They're, they're not, you know, if they're not investing in the, the sort of cover art that you need, then um, they're not putting, you know, they're not investing in those books uh, and you, you, you really don't want to go with those people. And then what you want to do is go out and, and see where their books are. Are they getting them into to bookstores? Uh, are they on Amazon? How many reviews are they getting on Amazon? Um, and, and see if they're doing the work to be able to, to, to get your book out there. And, uh, and then look at the authors that, that are published by them. Go find them on Twitter or wherever and communicate with them and ask them, uh, how's it working out for you? How do you how do you like uh, you know the relationship you've got and how your work's being treated? And if you do those three very simple things, uh, you can uh, end up not having those horror stories happen and, and find those things out ahead of time. Hmm. So, what is your creative process? Um, it, it 
it, it's tended to vary. Um, uh, I used to be uh, a plotter, uh, P-L-O-T-T-E-R and D-D-E-R, I guess, <laughs> um, and would plot the books out way ahead of time. Uh, uh, but I've been more of a discovery writer just in recent years, uh, and now I'm sort of a hybrid. Um, I sometimes will, I try to find different ways to get creatively inspired. Um, for example, um, I will go into a bookstore and look at covers and names of, of, of the titles just to see what are the things, because those are the two things that people use to figure out if they're going to pick up a book. You see the title, you see the cover, then you read the blurb on the back. Mm -hmm. And so I will go through that process of, of getting inspired. And um, I was uh, in a bookstore and I saw a title that was basically uh, a famous movie that had just, they had just changed the title just a little bit. And so I started running through my head, what were other famous movie titles or famous book titles that I could offer, alter just slightly that people would think they recognized it, that it would seem familiar to them. And um, the, I came up with this, this title of No Galaxy for Old Men <laughs> instead of No Country for Old Men. And for some reason, that hit a spark. And I wrote this book in 10 days. Wow. Wow. Uh, I've never done that before. And it's this, uh, it, the book's not out yet. And it's going to be a while before it comes out. But it's this space opera. And um, the book's now titled Jupiter Kincaid no galaxy for old men. And um, so you don't really know where those inspirations are going to come from. But I actually actively go out and mine, thing, mine things. Um, uh, one of the things about being a visual artist is that sometimes I go out when, when I'm not having a, a real uh, good writing day or sometimes just for a break and I'll do covers. I just finished doing about five covers in a row. Hmm. And sometimes a, a cover will spark an idea in me and I can write a book for that, that cover idea that I get. Uh, I've got this one really gnarly cover uh, of, it's just this just really gross body horror. Uh, it's a close-up of this guy's face. And uh, the entire story just popped into my head. I don't know if I'm going to write it or not because it's pretty much kind of schlocky. Um, and, you know, I, I'm not sure that I want to put the time into it necessarily. Um, but that, you know, that cover that I created gave me the entire idea for a story. Um, and so I also do a thing called cross, I, I call it creative cross training, where I will, you know, find a book and a movie and maybe some poetry that are totally unlike each other. You know, maybe a, a strange Takashi Miike He's a Japanese filmmaker that makes these really schlocky uh, horror films and, you know, read Shakespeare and then read a book by uh, somebody like Philip K. Dick and just smash all these things together in your head um, to come up with an idea. Hmm. And the other thing I do is um, I keep cramming stuff into my brain until something comes out. You know, if, if, if stuff is not coming out, I just keep cramming stuff in there until finally something comes back out. Um, and that's, that's, that's been a pretty fertile way for me. 
I find that I get more ideas and inspiration from books than any other source. Hmm. It's very rare that a, a film gives me, a, a, inspires me with, with an idea. Uh, a film like Antichrist by Lars von Trier gave me like three ideas. But uh, for the most part, it, it's in reading and, and sometimes nonfiction. Nonfiction is a tremendous source of, of, of ideas. Um, uh, especially futurist books, books that are you know speculating about what the world's going to be like in fifty years or ten years or a hundred years, um, and so you have to be a voracious consumer of of that material in order to be able to uh, uh, you know stuff's got to go in in order for stuff to come out, and that's hmm. that's that's part of my process for you know getting ideas and getting inspiration uh, as far as the writing. Um, one of the things that I have found is that when you do get that spark, you've got to jump on it right then. Um, the, that you, you, that initial inspiration, that, that Promethean sort of fire that, that just blooms in your, in your creative mind. Um, you got to jump on that fast and get into it and get rolling with it. And once you do, it becomes so much easier to keep that momentum going. And eventually, it always bogs down. It always get, it always gets slow. It always gets hard. It always gets miserable, um, and then you just got to slog to the end. Uh, and that's the reason it's, you know, it is work. I mean, you know, it's not all fun and games. Um, and th those are that's a little bit of a, uh, you know, a little bit of peek into what goes on in my scary head. Hmm. And in your in your mind, what makes a good story? Well. Um, for me, I usually get an, a story idea, which is basically a plot. Mm. But the thing that I have come to realize over time is that it is character that makes story work and makes story live on. If people don't care about your main character and want to follow that person uh, along, then your book is going to fail. Uh, the current book, that the, the most recent book that I've got, uh, a book called Hellfighters, the first beta readers I had on that book, uh, I, one of the questions I asked is, who's your favorite character and who's your least favorite character? And several of them's least favorite character was the main character. And uh, that is a death sentence right there. Mm. That is a death sentence. And um, all, all these beta re readers in this particular case were, were women. And uh, what they basically said when I probed a little bit deeper was that th this character had no empathy. There were people dying around him, and he uh, he just didn't seem he didn't stop long enough to mourn those people. He just went right barreling on with action. And so I, I, I write a lot of action, and so I you know I try to keep the reader you know cranked up with, with the action stuff. And I realized what I hadn't done was that I didn't stop and make that character complex enough and empathetic enough. Uh, he witnesses two people dying really, really early in the story. In, in Hellfighters, what happens is, is there's this, the main character is a guy named Max Heller, and he's this uh, really, really intelligent person. He, he, he's, he's a professor. He solves everything with his mind. And he goes, uh, he takes a, a job at this small college and stumbles upon this place in the woods 
that uh, where this evil is going on. And two of the people that go with him at different times die. And um, the, they just didn't feel like he had enough, that he stopped long enough to mourn these people. And what I was trying to, to make him do was the guy that he was trying to avenge these people. He was, you know, going into the action mode of, of getting out there and, and, and trying to solve the problem, you know, fix it, mm-hmm. uh, which is a very man thing to kind of do. You want to fi- you find a problem, you want to fix it. But I, I, he was not stopping long enough to be in touch with how he was feeling at the time. And um, that was a failing in me uh, and, and for that character and also showed that I wasn't doing a very good job of connecting with women, women readers. And so um, that was one of the things that I learned, I'd learned before, but it, in a very specific situation, I realized that character is, is the first thing that matters. It's, it's the first thing, the second thing, and the third thing that matters. Hmm. Uh, and if you've got a good enough character that people are interested in, they'll follow them to the ends of the earth uh, and, and that's why people like, you know, Sherlock Holmes, people still are interested in Sherlock Holmes, even though those books are, you know, were written a very, very long time ago. And the, and the prose is, is not what you're used to these days. Um, people like that character and want to know more about them. And so the number one thing is character. And so I tend to start with plot, but, uh, lately one of the things that I have been doing is developing characters and letting a story flow from those those characters and their quirks and their shortcomings. Uh, every character has got to have things about them that are admirable, but they also have to have things about them that are shortcomings, things that they need to overcome or do better with so mm-hmm. that they can have a story arc. And um, and so th- that's, that's where my writing is going, is in trying to do a better job at creating characters that are you know unforgettable and that or or at least that you just sort of fall in love with or, or want to be able to know what are these people going to do next hmm. how do you make a reader because i know there's a, the, the, a lot of recent entertainment is based around unlikable characters or at least um you know like breaking bad or the sopranos or mm-hmm. Mad Men. they're not really good people uh, by the time it's over. So how, how do you have the, get the reader to invest or to attach themselves to an unlikable character? Well, first of all, um, I can't say that I'm an expert at that, but what I will say is that, that they're not an unlikable character. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, I just watched the first episode of Breaking Bad again. You know, uh, I, I've tried to get into Breaking Bad several times and I, I went back and watched the first episode last night, as a matter of fact. And the thing that I realized, you know, now in my, you know, writer deconstructing mind, is that they they make that uh, they make Walter White. Um, he is an archetype. He is the the man who is everybody is crapping on, and that his life sucks, and that uh, and that people identify with uh, life is just, you know, it's out of my control. That, that's basically what his life is about, is that it's out of my control. And people empathize with that. And he's, you know, he's um, not a person you aspire to be like, but he is a person who uh, you can understand his, his failings and you can understand and you can empathize with how down on his luck this guy is. Um, and so you, you have to find some good 
in that bad character. Uh, and it is an art. I want to tell you something. The anti-heroes, it is an art. And uh, as a writer, honestly, you don't know when you're writing something if it's going to work. You don't know if an audience is going to get what you're, what you're dishing out. And um, with, with anti-heroes in particular, that is a really hard pull. And, mm-hmm. and uh, if you're wanting to do that, you need to research that a lot. But fundamentally, there has to be something good in that character or there has to be something in that character that you can identify with or there has to be something in that character that you can see he wants to not be bad, that he wants to aspire to something. Um, and normally with those kind of anti-hero characters, um, you know, they, you know, it's kind of like bad guy with a heart of gold, you know, mm. that, that that's one of the, the, the tropes or the archetypes, you know, their, their circumstances may have made them hard, but they don't really want to be hard. And, and, mm. and you want them to, you, you need the reader to be able to recognize that they don't really want to be that way or that, um, they aspire to be something more than that. Hmm. Wow. I, I get the feeling we can go for hours because <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's just been a really, a really interesting conversation, but, uh, I do have three more questions for you that I try to end every uh, conversation with. So the first one is, uh, if the zombie apocalypse happened today, what would be your weapon of choice? Uh, Honest to God, it needs to be a machine gun. I'm sorry. Uh, but the problem with a machine gun is it runs out of bullets. And my number two is a spear because you can keep your distance and do your damage. Um, and that is if zombies, in fact, all you got to do is kill the brain in order to get them to die. If that's not the case, and you've not really seen that done very much, then you got a whole nother set of problems, boy. <laughs> yeah. So the, uh, the second question is what, what was your first job? Uh, my first job is the one that made me decide I wanted to go to college. Um, mm-hmm. I, just as I was graduating from high school, there was a, um, no, it was actually a little bit, a little bit after that. Um, there was a company putting in a set of guardrails on the, on the road near my house. And uh, I had to be at the job at five o'clock in the morning and it was about 32 degrees. And we had, uh, my job was to take this big wrench and tighten up these bolts that were used to, to hold the guardrails to the posts that were put in the ground. And your hands were so cold that you couldn't hardly hold the wrench. And even if you had gloves, we were just freezing to death. And it was miserable. It was the most miserable thing I've ever done in my life. It was repetitive. It was boring. It was hard. It was freezing. And it was 12 hours a day. And uh, just putting in those guardrails was the thing that made me realize I do not want to work outside. I do not want to work with my hands. And I do not want to, uh, you know, have to earn my bread by just being miserable. And uh, so that that job taught me so many things. And my butt was enrolled in college ASAP. 
<laughs> yeah, it's something like some a little motivation to get you get you going. So the uh, the third question I have for you is uh, if the roles were reversed and you were in my position, was there a question that you would have asked that I did not ask? Um, I don't know. You know, we, we, this is, this is, you know, usually you, you talk about your projects and, and that kind of stuff. Uh, and this has been pretty wide ranging on a, on a number of, uh, of issues. Um, uh, but what I, I, I would say is if, if you give me an opportunity to, uh, just, just mention a few things. Yeah, of course. Um, uh, so I've got a book out right now called Hellfighters. That's that's uh, about, uh, as I said earlier, Max Heller. It's a, it's a Lovecraftian book. It's it's got some really nice cosmic writing in it, um, and uh, lots and lots of action. And it's it's not, you know, your daddy's uh, Lovecraft book. It's 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 I call twenty first <laughs> century Lovecraft. It's it's full of action. It's 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 a very really really interesting book. And I've got an audio book out there for my first novel, which is called More Than Evil. And I tried to use my filmmaking expertise. And so it has a completely 3D sound design. It's got uh, music and, and uh, effects and all this kind of stuff that you normally don't get to hear in an audio book. It's almost like a radio play in that, in that regard. So it has mm. this really, really rich sound design. And uh, it's 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 a completely it's out on Audible and it's a completely different experience that, that you'll get than than most audiobooks where it's just a person reading the book. And uh, in March of 2022, I've got a new book coming out that's called uh, Two Girls Save the World," and it's a it's a real fun uh, blast of a book set in the uh, Day of the Dead celebration in Mexico City, and it's mm. a real fun supernatural book uh, with all kinds of fun stuff that's going to happen in it. Um, and uh, those are just, you know, the, the, the things that I'm working on. Because the thing is, when you're a creative person, the things that you're putting in are like your children. You know, they're, right. you invest so much time and effort into them. And all you really want is for somebody to go out there and give them a chance and mm-hmm. and check them out and, and hopefully uh, get a little bit of joy out of them. And, um, and you know, the, these works are, um, they're, they're, they're part of you. And that's the real magic of writing is that it's a relationship. There's what I intended to say, and there's what you get out of it. Mm. And every reader has a different experience when they, when they read a book than you thought they were going to have. And it's such a unique relationship that, uh, and, and what results from that is something different than the reader expected or what you expected. And, Every single person has a different experience and brings their own history and background to that. And that's one of the things that I really, really enjoy about writing is that being able to connect across time and distance uh, and culture with, with people and, 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 and share those stories with them. And it's, uh, it's, it's, it's just my favorite thing to do on earth. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to go pick up a copy of uh, Hellfighters right after we're done to get that. You, you sold me on it, so it <laughs> sounds great. And I'll leave the, all those links down below in the description, whether it's on the uh, on YouTube or on the podcast. Uh, I want to say thank you so much. It's, it's been an awesome conversation. I think we've, we've had some fun and, and covered a lot of ground. And uh, I, uh, I hope that uh, Bill Richardson is Bill with one L. So folks find me. You can find me someplace, Twitter, Facebook, on online. And... Um, Go out and support 
indie artists and indie, whether it's an indie comic book artist or an indie publisher or uh, indie books or indie films or indie music, uh, some of the best stuff out there. And I'm not just talking about my stuff. I'm talking about there is some really great stuff out there that you've not heard of. And everybody's favorite thing to do. Remember when you discovered that song that nobody else knew yet, yeah. or you saw that film and you were dying to go brag to your friends and say, "Oh, you got to see this." Well, a lot of that stuff is 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 indie stuff, and that's that's where those golden nuggets are. So go out there and support indie artists. There's lots of ways to do that, but uh, you'll you'll you're going to find some good fun stuff that will. Uh, uh, you'll be able to. You'll be proud to be able to share with your friends. Yes, and you mentioned uh, social media. Where where can people find you? Where's the best place to connect with you? Uh, Twitter is good. Uh, it's it's this gobbledygook name. It's like Bill Richardson ten or something stupid like that. I, I created Twitter Twitter a long long time ago. But the great thing about Twitter is that I have a setup for you. Can, you can DM me. Um, I've got a website that's Bill Richardson, Bill with one L.com. You can, you can get me through that. Uh, my Facebook page is, 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 you know, more about my life and my, my, you know, family and all that, that kind of stuff. But you can also hit me up through there. Um, those are, you know, pretty much the points of contact. Hit me up. Nice. Great. So, yeah. I, like I said, I think we can go on for hours just because, uh, you know, it's already been over two hours. And we, we talked. Oh, about has it? it? I haven't yeah. even been looking. Because yeah. uh, I it just, I realized what time it was. And, uh, but I, I have, a, I get the feeling we can, we could have gone a lot longer. I just, I still have more questions I had written down for you, but I know that you have a life to live in bookstore, right? So I don't want to keep you too long. Well, it was, it was great to, to be with you and, uh, enjoy this a lot and let's do it again. Yeah. Whatever you want, just let me know and we'll, we'll set something up. Sounds good. Awesome. Bye, everybody. Thanks, everybody.